Nehemiah is often cited by students of the Bible as being a great leader, and I would not argue that point, and we're, we're picking up from last week where we left off. I wouldn't argue that at all, but do not fail to recognize that Nehemiah, not only a great leader, but he was a man of faith. And when I say he was a man of faith, what I mean is he was a man of faith in God. Man of faith in, not a man of faith in himself, a man of faith in God. And as I said last week, Nehemiah is an instrument in the hands of God. And I don't try to, uh, you know, no, none of these people of faith in the Bible are perfect. Understand this, right? They're not perfect people. They have problems. They have fault, flaws. They are sinners. Uh, but, and yet, God uses these people. I don't try to exalt them. I only try to say about them what the Scripture says about them. The fact is, though, the Lord used both Ezra and Nehemiah to do his work. And we have people in the Bible, when we go to these accounts in the Scripture, they, they show us these people because they, they want, God wants to know how God works, how he works through the lives of these people. And so don't forget 1 Corinthians 10, 11, which says about Old Testament people and Old Testament events, read the chapter carefully, it says, these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We can learn from these guys like Nehemiah. So what happens to people who put their faith fully in the Lord as they, engage, as they go out on a venture of faith like Nehemiah was going to do? And how did Nehemiah fare in his venture of faith? Well, that's in chapter 2. Last week we noted this. We noted, first of all, the conflict faith presents in verses 1 and 2. The conflict that faith presents, and I'm not going to go over all this because of time, just to say this, before the king, Nehemiah, Nehemiah was sad. He was sad because he was burdened, because of the city of Jerusalem being broken down, had a great burden uh, for that city, his, uh, where he came from originally. He had never been to Jerusalem, but that, he was a Jew. And also, he is fearful because the king says, why are you sad? Well, you can't be sad in front of the king of Persia. You're not allowed to do that in the court. So now he's, it says he's very much afraid in the New American Standard there. And so you have this conflict that faith presents. You launch out in faith, and these things happen. Fear, sadness, all kinds of things as you pursue a course of faith. Secondly, notice the courage faith requires. We looked at that last week. The courage faith requires in verses 3 to 6. Nehemiah, what does he do? He prays. He's afraid. So he prays, it says, and God gives him the courage to speak to the king and ask for permission to go to Jerusalem, and his request is granted miraculously. Number three, the providence faith discerns in verses 7 and 8. All this is last week. The providence faith discerns. Uh, when all is said and done, Nehemiah realizes that's the Lord who's behind his success. Uh, verse 8, look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Nehemiah says, it's the good hand of my God that was on me. That's why. Nehemiah's success, not because he's such a great leader. Yes, he's a great leader. It's because God is providentially guiding him through this whole process People who trust the Lord can discern that providential leading of God. They see it. They see that it's not just their abilities and talents. It's that God is behind the movement. Fourthly, the enemy's faith attracts. We'll pick it up tonight. At this point, the enemy's faith attracts. Look at verse 9, chapter 2. Then Nehemiah says, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. He's on his way now it's from Persia to Judah. And I gave them the king's letters. Letters of recommendation to go through. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek, can you imagine this, the welfare of the sons of Israel. How dare someone do that? Now Nehemiah is making a journey, the same journey Ezra made, and the people with him, he goes about 900 miles from Persia, and he goes all the way to Judah, 
on this dangerous journey. Remember, there's possibility of bandits along the way. It says in Ezra 8, when Ezra made the journey, possibility of danger along the way and ambushes and all that. And so he makes this dangerous journey. But unlike Ezra, Nehemiah gets Persian protection. Gets protection from the Persian government. Soldiers are, are allowed to go with him to escort him along the way. Now, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, king of the ruling, uh, the, the greatest king in the world this time, he wanted to do that for Ezra as well. And he said, I'll do this for you, Ezra. Back in the book of Ezra, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an escort to, take, to go with you. But Ezra, remember, Ezra had said in chapter 8, remember, he said, wait a minute, king, I want you to know this, the hand of God is favorably disposed to all who seek him. In other words, Ezra said, you know, I appreciate the escort, the, uh, the, the, that you want to do this for me. However, God's going to take care of us. God's going to protect us. He'll get us there. You talk about people of faith, that's faith. He's taking families with him. This is a dangerous journey along the way, and he says, no, we're, we're good because God's going to take care of us. So Ezra goes without the king's escort in Ezra chapter 8. However, here in, Ezra, in Nehemiah 2, and I hope I didn't get the names confused, Nehemiah gets the escort. He gets the escort. Is he lacking in faith? He doesn't have families going with him. Is he lacking in faith? No. The circumstances are different in this case. Neither is wrong in what he did. Ezra's mission was publicly initiated by the king of Artaxerxes. He's the one that said, I want you guys to do this. He publicly backed it. He supported it all the way from the beginning. But Nehemiah, on the other hand, has to go and ask permission from the king to go to Jerusalem. And what he did was to require, it required that the king reverse his policy on Jerusalem. We saw that. The king literally reversed his policy on Jerusalem and said, okay, go ahead and do this thing. So Nehemiah is in no position to refuse the escort. The king says, I'm sending you with an escort. Nehemiah is in no position to refuse this. It's been, it was the better part of wisdom that he accepts his circumstances, that he accepts the escort, and he does this. Now, these kinds of matters between believers, you know, Ezra going without the escort, Nehemiah going with the escort, these kind of matters that, that rise between believers, should I do this, should I do it that way, how does the guy want me to do it, does he want me to do it the way this guy did it, should I do it the way this guy did it, that, that's, that's your, based on the discernment God gives you, based on your circumstances. In every case, you take a guy like George Mueller who decided, who was a pastor of a large church and who had all these orphanage houses, he decided not to take a salary. Can you imagine that? Didn't take a salary, not to ask anybody for money, for support, and he did that for a reason. He didn't do it just because he could have a biography written about him, how great he was. He did it because he wanted to show people, I want to show the world that God can answer prayer. That was his goal. I want to show the world that, that we can trust him by faith, and he's going to answer our prayer, and he's going to do a, this great work, and he did, and it worked out that way. Now, I've read other people like Spurgeon who said the pastor cast himself upon the congregation for support, financial support, and he's got 1 Corinthians 9 to back him up on that. But both, here's the thing, who's right? Well, both Mueller and Spurgeon were men of faith. They both did what they thought they should do in their circumstances and for different reasons. Here's the point. <clears throat> Christians are not intended to be carbon copies of one another. Some people think they are. You, you should follow this guy. How come you're not following that guy? Why don't you do it the way that church did it over there? That happens all the time. We all do things differently. Is that right, Larry? Churches do things differently, and that's okay. It's okay. We have one common denominator, and that is what we do, 
we must do within the bounds of scriptural guidelines. That's our common denominator. If we do that, we're on safe ground. If this church does it this way and we do it this way, it's okay. As long as we're exalting Christ and we are doing it on scriptural grounds, we're good to go. Of course, the word gets around that Nehemiah is on his way. He's on his way to Jerusalem. People hear about this. And guess who is the first to, among the first to hear? Guess who it is? The enemies of the Jews. Verse 10. The enemies of the Jews are the first to hear. Uh, you have a guy named Sanballat, the Horonite, and you got a guy named Tobiah, the Ammonite. Who are these guys? Well, <clears throat> we do have some information on these guys because there was an archaeological discovery made. Uh, called the Elephantine Papyrus. And in that papyrus, it says Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. So he's, he is a guy who's a high-ranking official. As far as Tobiah is concerned, he is a guy who may have been the governor of Ammon. He may have been a top-ranking official under Sanballat. It's kind of argumentative, debatable as to who he is, but a high-ranking official nonetheless. Look at verse 19. A third guy is thrown in the mix. His name is Geshem the Arab. As being, he's part of that group. Geshem was a powerful chieftain of several Arabian tribes. So in other words, these guys are a force to be reckoned with. They're the enemies of the Jews. They're not lightweights. They're, they present a real problem. and They'll continue to present a real problem for Nehemiah as we go through this book. They are enemies of the Jews. Their biggest grievance is that they are displeased that someone is coming all the way from Persia to seek the welfare of Israel, the welfare of the Jews. Very upset. They will have none of that, and the rest of history will be the same story. Isn't it true? The rest of history will be the same story. You rarely hear about somebody who wants to seek the welfare of Israel. How many people heard this week in the news, oh, we're so interested and so concerned about Israel? Who says that? Even some of our own Congress aren't interested in the, in the, in the in the welfare of Israel. That's always been their history. They've always been a despised and hated people. Always. Worst example maybe being the Holocaust. Satan has made them his special target originally because what? They were people set apart to God. And guess, guess another reason for it. Because the Christ in whom we hope was going to be born a Jew. And die on a cross and be raised in, again the third day. And of course Satan will, doesn't want any of that at all. And so the, the enemies of the Jews don't want the welfare of Israel. Now, people of faith automatically attract enemies like this. When they show up on the scene, the first people to greet them are probably the enemies. Oh, no. Here they come. Here comes that group of believers. It just seems to go with the territories. Enemies of God never want God's people to prosper. They want them to suffer or be put out of existence. You see that throughout church history, right? You see that with persecution again and again. They want to get rid of them. They are not now, nor have they ever been interested in the welfare of Israel. They are not now, nor have they ever been interested in the history or in the welfare of the church. Just like Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. These are the enemies that faith attracts. Number five, the burden faith carries. The burden faith carries, look at verse 11 and 12. And Nehemiah says, uh, and I arose, uh, verse, verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind or my heart, better, probably better my heart, to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. 
Now, Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem, and he does the first thing that Ezra did when he got there. He just kind of hung out for three days, or remained three days. They just went through a long journey, maybe four months of a long journey here, maybe less because they're, they have escort and maybe horses and all this. Uh, but nevertheless, they're tired. Maybe he rested for three days, it doesn't say. But after that, he begins to move into action. And the action takes place under the cover, cover of darkness. He's going to inspect the city of Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. First thing he's going to do, inspect the city. And I love the scene here when you read this. Nehemiah does not want anyone to know what he's doing. This mission is secret. He's going to keep it secret. He needs to find out firsthand what is the situation of the city? What does it look like? I heard a lot of things. What does it really look like? And so he does it at nighttime, it says. He does it at nighttime. He arises in the night, it says. People are going to be asleep, and he gets just a handful of men he can trust and confide in to go with them. Keep it on the down low, guys. We're going to keep this quiet. He's seeking the welfare of Israel. He's already got enemies who don't like that idea, and he doesn't want any information to leak out that could be damaging to his plan at this time, this early stage of the game, and he wants no one to know. He takes only one animal. Many people think it's a mule. You know, if he had a lot of animals, if everybody had an animal to ride on, it might draw unwanted attention. And so he only has one animal. He wants to get the good look, a good look at the city so he can have a solid plan. People say that Nehemiah is a great planner. That's very true. But there's something else here that reveals and helps us to understand one of the driving forces of Nehemiah's life in verse 12, especially as it relates to this mission. What does he say in verse 12? He said, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind or my heart to do for Jerusalem. Not only is Nehemiah providentially led by outward circumstances, but he is driven by an inward burden as well. This is a burden, according to Nehemiah, that God put on his heart. Uh, Nehemiah views his relationship as very personal. Did you, did you see those words? Look at verse 8. Back to verse 8. He says, the, hand, the good hand of my God was on me. This is a personal relationship. Look at verse 12. He says, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind. Nehemiah is very aware that, that it's his God who's directing this whole operation. And this inward burden that he has propels him to do things he would not normally do. I mean, this guy's been a cupbearer all this time. He's, he doesn't do inspect cities for damage. He doesn't build cities and all this. And I think that this has been on his heart for a long time, even before he got a report about Jerusalem in chapter 1. I think he thought about this before. But the burden grew when Nehemiah found out that, hey, this city's in total disarray. And Nehemiah, wanted to, he finds out this report. Things are bad. The burden begins to grow, and he prays for four months, and he fasts, and he seeks God. And that burden increases further, and God begins the movement in action. Look at verse 12 again. Nehemiah says in verse 12, God put this into my heart to do this for Jerusalem. He wants to do something for Jerusalem. The burden has a goal. It's not just a feeling. The Lord wants him to do something for Jerusalem. In this case, rebuild it. And Nehemiah has to do the building. Nehemiah has to figure out how to, how to build it, how best to go about it. But God is the one who put it in his heart. Now, that's similar to Ezra chapter 1, when it says the Lord stirred the people to, from, to go from Persia to Jerusalem um, to, do, to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
God stirred their hearts. Here's a similar incident right here. You know, a person of genuine faith, he's going to carry a burden, some burden in his heart to do something for the Lord, some work for God, maybe not as specific as Nehemiah's task, but he's going to have something in his heart that burdens him for the Lord's work. <clears throat> maybe a burden for the lost. It will be a burden for the lost. It may be a burden to proclaim the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord. It may be a burden to fulfill some need in the church, but God's people will be moved to serve him in some capacity. There's going to be an inward burden, I believe, in every Christian, something that pushes you, to, that the Holy Spirit pushing you to, to do something for the Lord. It could even be tied in with a spiritual gift. You know, if you profess to be a believer, think about this. If you profess to be a believer and there is nothing at all that weighs on your heart regarding the work of the Lord, you should probably examine yourself. Is there nothing at all you want to do for God? Nothing, zero. You can sit there and never participate, and you're good with that. That's a problem. Now, this burden may be stronger at times than others. Remember, Timothy had to fan his gift into flame. It may be a flicker at times. It may be low at times. But there should be some desire from God that drives you to serve him in some capacity. I'm not talking about something strange here when I say this. I'm not talking about mere emotions. I'm not talking about God speaking to you audibly. I'm not talking about you getting a vision in the night. I'm not saying any of that. I'm talking about something corroborated by the scripture that God gives you a true burden to do his work, to serve him in some way. I think that that's legitimate. and it, That's what Nehemiah had. That's what the people in Ezra chapter 1 had. That's what Ezra had. For some people, this may mean even, even entering into full-time ministry. The burden may be that to that extent. You know, I think of Paul. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 9.16. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul said, If I preach the gospel, listen to this great statement. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Literally, I love the literal rendering of that phrase. Literally, necessity is laid upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. Who laid that upon Paul? The Lord did. That necessary idea of I've got to do something for the gospel's sake. He says, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is unto me. Paul felt this inward constraint, this obligation, this burden that drove him to preach the gospel. Nehemiah had this inward constraint that drove him to do this work he was going to do. People of faith will carry burdens like these. Sixthly, it said, the resolve faith inspires. The resolve faith inspires. Look at verses 13 to 15. This is actually verses 13 to 20, but look at verses 13 to 15. So I went out by night by the valley gate and the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate. That must have been a nice place. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the, its gates, which were consumed by fire, then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up by night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Now these verses, verses 13 to 15, reveal more information about the city of Jeru the layout of the city of Jerusalem than anywhere in the Old Testament you'll find right here. Although many locations are hard to pin down because of the destruction that took place, and there's debate about these locations, at any rate... Nehemiah begins his inspection of Jerusalem, and he can finally see it with his own eyes. It's, it's one thing to hear it with the hearing of the ears. It's another thing to see it in person to know exactly what to do. You remember last year, I can't remember the name of the hurricane. The, the hurricane that hit Mexico Beach, Ken, what was that? 
panhandle of Florida, hit Mexico Beach and came through. Hurricane Michael. That was it, right? Hurricane Michael hit. And I heard that the damage was great. Heard reports about that. I saw some pictures that showed me the damage was great. But I'll tell you what, several months later, I was driving down I-10 going to northwest Florida, and I saw with my own two eyes how great the damage was. I, I couldn't believe it. This is, all, this is 60 miles in, inland to the interstate. I think it's 60 miles. And there are trees that are cut in half for a long way, just literally just chopped in half. The tops of them are cut off. Trees on the ground destroyed. Road signs were down. All for miles this, this went on. I, couldn't, I could not believe the destruction. I think Ken's son is out there working for a construction crew, and I think they may still be trying to get trees off roofs. I don't know. Roofs, but... <clears throat> I, I thought to myself, this is going to take years to clear the damage. That's how bad it was. You know, it was, it was one thing for me to hear about, another thing to see it in person, and that's how this was for Nehemiah. He's going to see it firsthand, and what he sees is this, great destruction everywhere. Now, we're not going to try to identify all these places, but let me point out a few things about this inspection tour. Number one, Nehemiah, look at verse 13, starts his inspection by the valley gate. We're not going to go into all this, and a lot of these things are kind of shaky as to where they are. In verse 13, look at verse 15. He ends his inspection by the valley gate. Comes back through it. He does not make a complete circuit of the wall of Jerusalem. He retraces his steps at a certain point. Number two, you can see in verse, t- verse 13 that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and the gates have been burnt by fire just as reported to him. That's accurate. Number three, when he gets to the king's pool in verse 14, which may have been the pool of Siloam, he has to dismount off his donkey, his horse, whatever he's on. The animal cannot pass through because the debris is piled so high. It's impossible to get through. He can't get through. Archaeologists did excavations in the 1960s in the, uh, based on verse 14. And they said this. This is about verse 14. The tumble of stones uncovered is a vivid sample of the ruinous state of the eastern side of Jerusalem that blocked Nehemiah's donkey. This event shows that the sight of this cascade of stones persuaded Nehemiah that he could not attempt to restore the quarter of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the eastern ridge. They say that in that area, there was terraces up where houses were built on, and it was held up by the, the wall of Jerusalem. And when that wall was destroyed, the terraces came, the houses came tumbling down, and there was great devastation, tremendous devastation. This is what Nehemiah sees. Number four, as a result of this, Nehemiah, when he rebuilt Jerusalem, the walls and all that, it was smaller than the Jerusalem of the pre-exilic time, the smaller Jerusalem. The result of this inspection, they had the work cut out for them. We got a lot of work to do. It's now Nehemiah's job to convey this situation to the leaders of the people to get them to join in the rebuilding effort. Now stop for a minute and think If you're in Nehemiah's shoes, and your faith is as weak as the average professing Christian today, and you see all this devastation, you witness all this, your reaction may be to do for the city of Jerusalem the rebuilding of it, what has been done prior to Nehemiah's time, and that is nothing at all. Now, others came. They had to rebuild the temple. God wanted them to do that first. They did that after a long delay, I might add. But that's been long completed. Ezra came for other, another purpose. He did his, he's doing his job, did his job, still doing his job. But when will the city be rebuilt? What will it take? I'll tell you what it's going to take. 
It's going to take a man of faith in God, providentially led by God, burdened by God, uh, to see with the eye of faith what others cannot see. This can be rebuilt. The average person would look at this and say, it ain't going to happen. No way. Forget this. And, but if Nehemiah was walking by sight, he would say the same thing. I can hear him now. Well, this is crazy, all this destruction. I, this is overwhelming. I didn't bank on this. I, maybe I'll go back to Persia, and all I had to do there was lift the cup to the king. I, and now this disaster? But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Look at verse 16. The officials, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, Nehemiah says, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. I didn't tell any of these guys what I was doing. Then I t- said to them, <clears throat> you see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates burn with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also how the king's words which he had, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Now, so far, all this time, Nehemiah only has a few trusted men he's confided in. They're the only ones that know about this secret mission at night. He hasn't revealed this to the religious leaders, hasn't told the top officials, hasn't told anybody who's going to do the work in the time to come. Nobody knew this. Finally, the time is right. The facts are gathered. He knows what he's going to do. And so he makes his presentation. Now, how does he make this presentation? Because this is very important. I I feel like we're in an elders meeting here. This is very important how he's going to make his presentation. He's going to do a certain way. Number one, he tells them the honest truth. Look at verse 17. He says, you see, men, the bad situation we're in. This is a bad situation. Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned with fire. Doesn't try to whitewash it. Very realistic about it. You might tend to think that people who are of faith are not realistic about their circumstances. They might come across to you as starry-eyed dreamers, you know, as visionaries. That's not how people who have true faith are very understanding of their situation. They see things as they really are. They're dead honest about life. They're dead honest about the situations they encounter. And they convey that to people. And honesty may not always be popular, but it's always right. And this is what he does. Secondly, he identifies with the people. Look at verse 17. He says... <clears throat> You see the bad situation we are in? He could have said, hey, you guys got, a, what, you guys got a problems over here. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He said, we are in a bad situation. Let us rebuild so we will no longer be a reproach. He doesn't come across as aloof. He doesn't come across as the big shot from Persia, for the Persian court, the big man, the cupbearer who has an important position in Persia. He doesn't come across that way. This is good leadership. He identifies with them. Number three, he gives them reasons for rebuilding. First of all, here's why we should rebuild, gentlemen. Number one, so we, won't, we will no longer consider it to be a reproach. The word means disgrace or scorn or abuse. People won't continue to abuse us or mock us or scorn us. We won't be a disgrace anymore. Probably people were mocking them, the neighboring nations. And you got a city here with a broken down. Look, the wall of security was extremely important back in that day. Had to have it for protection. Uh, many cities had it. This once mighty nation of Jerusalem had it, that, that wall, but now it's a broken down pile of rubble. That's all it is, and they're being disgraced by people. You build it, though, and the reproach is gone. Here's the second reason for rebuilding, because God is behind it, Nehemiah says. I want to tell you guys that God's behind this. He says, I told them 
how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. And he said that. We saw that in chapter 8. That's true. It was, God's hand was favorable. This is not Nehemiah's idea even. This is God at work. He is providentially guiding this product. God wants this built. And so for this reason alone, it should be rebuilt. Number three, the king of Persia, verse 18, the king of Persia gave his permission to build. Well, that's good enough. Uh, that's the highest authority in the land. We would be fools not to build it with the king's permission. You know, I love Nehemiah's attitude of faith. We're talking about faith. And I, I thought about this through the whole chapter. In verse 17, look at his attitude of faith. Come, let us rebuild in that case, he says. There's no reason not to rebuild. Let's do this thing. And I love the reply of faith in the Lord. In verse 18, the people say this. Then they said, let us arise and build. Let's do it. So they put their hands to the good work. Literally, they strengthen their hands for the good work. And I want you to know that this is a good work they're going to do. This is a good work they're going to do. Just like the pastorate, the overseership in 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a good work they desire to do. This is a good work. Now, you may have to remind yourself of that truth at times, but know that when you're doing the work of God, you're doing a good work. I think Mike reminded me of that the other day. We were having a discussion. It's a good work we're doing. In this church, we're involved in a good work. You may be discouraged at times, but know that this is a good work, a work that God approves of. Approves of. He doesn't approve of everything we do, I'm sure. If we're doing it his way, though, he'll approve of it. And in order to do this work, we must strengthen our hands. And that is an idiom that means we must take courage, encourage ourselves, encourage ourselves in the Lord to do his work. Now, how did they get to the point that they could have such a determined resolve. They're so determined now after this great destruction. They see it. They're not fooled. How do they have such a determined resolve to do this? It's because Nehemiah encourages their faith in God. He's encouraging their faith in God. It's his faith in God inspired their faith in God. Now, this, now Nehemiah is not a cheerleader, okay? He is not a motivational speaker. He is simply a man of God who sees the difficult task ahead of him. He sees how difficult it is. He honestly relates that task to the people, and he says, God is at work here. Let's join him in his work. Let's do this thing. We can do it. And that's how the body of Christ should view the work we have to do. We should look at the work, the difficult, yes, problems out there, yes, and yet God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to do this work. We should Now let's get it done. We should join in and do it. Whatever the obstacles, let's do it. And once again, in the last two verses, that you see this determined resolve of Nehemiah comes out before his enemies. Look at verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, the big three, they mocked us and they despised us and they said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and I said to them, look at this statement of faith, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we are his servants, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. It's important how he answers the enemy because you can see it's not, the, the attack is not directed only to Nehemiah, but he says in verse 19, the enemies mocked who? They mocked us. They despised us, all of us. And so Nehemiah has to be careful how he answers. They're, the enemies are against all of them, so he says the God of heaven will give us success we're his servants. We're going to do this thing. How could Nehemiah be so sure of that, though? Would you, would you say that, Mike, is such a bold statement? God's going to give us success, and you got rubble everywhere. How could he be so sure that God would give them success? How is it 
he had such great faith to make this great bold statement before his enemies. How could he do this? It's similar to the statement Ezra made in Ezra 8, 22. Again, he said to Artaxerxes, the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. Great statement of faith. Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will give us success. How could he say it? Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. Nehemiah's praying. This is before all this happened. He's praying when he hears about the bad news, about the bad report of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah prays, O Lord, I beseech you, may your, your ear be attentive, attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, before King Artaxerxes. Make us successful today. He prays this way. It's the same word successful as in, also as in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, same word. And so he prays this way for success. And God answers his prayer, and God clears the way, and God gets him to Jerusalem. And, and, be, and Nehemiah knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that the work that God begins, he will perfect. This is going to happen because this is what God wants to be done. Therefore, Nehemiah tells his enemies, we will arise and build. We're going to arise and build. As for you, you have no portion. You don't have any share in the land of Jerusalem. You have no right. You have no legal right over Jerusalem. You don't rule here. Who are you? You have no memorial in Jerusalem. You don't worship here. You don't worship our God. But we, on the other hand, are his servants. We're the servants of the God of heaven. So leave us alone. God is going to make us successful. That's the final statement of faith made in this chapter. Let me just say this and we'll close. The Lord has called us to be people of faith in him. That's what he's called us to. In Luke 8, 25, after the disciples showed a lack of faith at, at sea in the storm, which they usually did, Jesus asked him this question, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where is it at? Do we trust in the Lord is the question. If we're trusting the Lord with all our heart, if we're not leaning into our own understanding through the trials of life, and these things can be very difficult, our faith is exactly where the Lord wants it to be in that case. And we can move ahead with assurance that what we're doing, God will bless. He'll bless his work. It's all about trusting the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful again for your word. Uh, we, are, we pray we will be people of faith, trusting you, Lord. We pray for the baptism to come now, these two that are going to be baptized. We pray that you will work in their lives, Lord, that they'll follow you in obedience, not only in baptism, but throughout their lives. We pray we'll encourage them and be uh, those that will encourage them ongoing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.